All right, here's one of the major questions that everybody has right now. Are we in the midst of an economic collapse? I'm not talking about a simple recession. We've experienced those over the last 30 years. No, I'm talking about something that we have not seen for four decades in this country. And the reason why you know it's probably going to happen is because politicians are flocking to social media, the news, and everyone else to try to get out their narrative with respect to who's to blame and what should be done. And lo and behold, there's a whole host of politicians that think everybody else is to blame and that the solution is for them to have more power. And so we're going to explain on this episode what is really going on, what has caused it. Because the bad news is this, there are some economic realities that we're going to have to face that are inevitable. But if we can properly understand why it happened and how you fix it, we can actually improve going forward. We're going to discuss all that and more on this episode of Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. I think this is one you're going to want to stick around for, because if I'm right, you are going to walk away with actionable items that you can use to discuss with friends and family and use this to have a more uh, appropriate and effective conversation. So thank you for joining us. And if you found this episode to be valuable, leave us a comment on the YouTube channel and make sure you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. All right, as always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a good person. We also have my beautiful wife who is not here today. Uh, don't worry, she will be back, I think. I don't like, it's not like she got up this morning and said, hey, I need to go out and get some milk and then didn't come home. So <laughs> I think I think she'll be here. I think she'll be here next episode. But yeah, so Tina, unfortunately, is not with us today. But we do have our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Hello. And uh, I want to say, we always say political prognosticator. Mm -hmm. And a couple episodes ago, we actually got to go over some things where he got to prognosticate in the future. Now what we're going to do is validate all the credibility we have given this guy in telling you that he's someone you can trust. Because we're going to go back in time and look at something that he wrote in order to tell you that, hey, he, he, he might know what he's talking about. Yeah. And then, of course, as always, we have our producer, a producer, the guy that makes it happen, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, not the one that pushed for that is exactly right the Nick. central bank the filthy monarchist yeah and it is a pleasure to be here with you all and christian i vaguely remember about a year ago you putting out a rather long essay it was an essay on facebook <laughs> predicting what we would call the everything bubble i'm hoping you can give us a bit of context into that prediction yeah, without so, reading like the whole essay i won't read the whole <laughs> essay um it would be it, that would be the episode right then yeah. that's a wrap everyone <laughs> Um, no, it was pretty long, but first off, thank you for the giant ego booster. I, I would, I, honestly, I would not have, have said that, um, myself. I, I think that I call to some degree what's happening with the implosion of the NASDAQ and the S and P 500, what I think is soon to be the implosion of the housing, uh, the housing bubble as well. We haven't gotten to there yet, but don't worry if the interest rates keep rising, we will. Um, but, uh, in February last year, so February, 2020, um, I was looking at the markets. They were on an all-time high, despite the fact that unemployment was through the roof. Inflation was about to go through the roof. It hadn't actually happened yet. In February 2020, inflation, I'm pretty sure, was under 3%. Um, but I, I was looking at, you know, how much money the Federal Reserve had, had injected into the economy and where it found its way into, and it found its way into stocks and real estate. And I, I put two and two together, and I thought, oh, my God, where – we're in the largest economic bubble in history. I mean, it, at least in the history of the United States. And so I, I wrote two things. One thing I wrote on February 13th, which is really short. And I said, we're in the middle of probably the largest bubble in modern history. I can't tell you when it will end, but I can tell you how it will end in tears. This is completely uncharted territory. 
I'm old enough to remember when it was the Federal Reserve's job to take away the punch bowl once the party started to get out of hand. And now they're actively spiking the punch. This was back when the Federal Reserve was continuously injecting trillions of dollars into the economy at the time. They had not slowed down the money printer, so to speak. And Nick actually replied to that Facebook post of mine and said, it's always been the Fed's job, but they don't typically do it. And he was referring to the Federal Reserve on paper is supposed to be keeping this stuff in check. But as history shows, ironically enough, it's actually usually the Federal Reserve that's causing these problems, not solving them or keeping them from happening. And then it was a few days later on February 19th of 2021 that I ended up writing the essay. And as I said, I'm not going to read the whole entire thing because it'd be way too long, but I'll summarize it by saying that I started it with, today marks the one-year anniversary of the beginning of the COVID crash of 2020 when the S&P 500 peaked before plummeting some 34% by March 23rd. And then I go on to write, since then, the market has recovered and reached an all-time high. And then I got into why I think that was the case and how I think that that market recovery was really illusory. It was not because the economy was growing. The economy was shrinking during COVID because politicians had shut down large parts of the country. So why on earth was the stock market going through the roof at the same time that productivity was collapsing and everybody was locked inside their homes for a year? And and so then, you know, I, I gave my reasons for why, and we'll get into some of that today over the course of, of you know, this podcast But then I concluded with a prediction that was one that I didn't want to see happen, but I think it's starting to play out. And I finished it, this essay, with saying that, you know, we're in a giant bubble. And ironically, it's the M2 money supply, which we'll explain what that is in a little bit. But it's the M2 money supply, which greatly helped to fuel this bubble. And that could actually very well prove to be its undoing. Should the massive increase in the M2 money supply lead to a spike in inflation and thus bring about higher interest rates, that would almost certainly cause the bubble to crash and tank large sectors of the market, which has relied on a steady supply of cheap credit and nigh unlimited liquidity to fuel its meteoric rise. We're seeing signs that this could already be taking shape. And then I go on to explain that, you know, there there were a few indications to suggest that inflation was about to start rising. And this was back again when inflation was way below, you know, what it currently is. It it was underneath 3% at the time. And and then I concluded with, so how does this end, you know, or when does this end? I I didn't know. I wrote this in February last year, but I, I, I didn't know that it would take over, you know, what, 12, 14 months later for it to actually start playing out. But now it is. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that as we looked at as we looked at how we were going to discuss things on this podcast, one of the biggest things that we wanted to do was ensure that we were hitting on the narratives because the, the left has an answer for what, what's really going on and what's really causing all of this, whether it's inflation, whether it's you know things like student loan debt, whether it's housing prices, whether it's general increase in prices. They have all got their responses. And so we're going to go through what Joe Biden, what Elizabeth Warren, what AOC, what Bernie, what are they chalking up the problems to? Because like I said, we, we are past the point of anyone pretending like this isn't happening. Can I just point out one second before we actually jump yeah. headfirst into this? Because I think we're going to start with a tweet from Joe Biden here mm-hmm. that is a recent tweet, by the way. Yesterday. He yeah. deserves to be lambasted for. But I just want to point out the same people on the left, the same politicians that are now trying to give you a solution to the problem are also the same people that a year ago were telling you there was going to be no problem. Yeah. I, I just want to get that across. Like when I was writing this in February 2021 saying like there's going to be a huge problem, I'm I'm old enough to remember when Democrats – 
and and other politicians were trying to say that there is no inflation. Oh, the experts, all of the, oh my gosh, the yeah, we the couldn't see this coming. This was How a- on earth could the Federal Reserve yeah. not see this coming? And yeah. I could. Well, let's, I'm not let's an go, expert. Let's let's go. Let's go because we're going to explain that. We're going to yeah. explain. Let's go into this. So the very first very first tweet that we've got to bring up because inflation is one of the numbers. This is the first time in my lifetime that when P- Americans are polled on what is the issue you are most concerned about, they say inflation. Right, first time in my lifetime that has ever happened. So we've talked about inflation before on this podcast. We've provided definitions about what it is. But today what we want to talk about is what is Joe Biden chalking it up to? And he sent out this tweet, which, by the way, has 98,000 likes. And he said, you want to bring down inflation? Let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. Now, one of the things that we try to do on this podcast, right? You've heard of a straw man argument. That's where you create like a, a, a you know, a weak version of your opponent's argument and then knock it down. We try to do what we call the steel man argument, which is to say we try to give it the, the best possible, you know, interpretation possible. So we can we can then go through and analyze it. Yeah, if we wanted to set up a straw man argument, we would have uh, we would have come up we with would this. have come up with this. This is what we would have said. <laughs> like he did it for us, and, and I'm sitting here going. This is about the, the closest thing you come to a non sequitur, right? You, you want to bring down inflation? The government needs to take more money from people. What? I mean, the whole reason why, the, okay, let, let's, let's ask this question. Why do corporations, and oh, by the way, everybody else, have, have a, why is there a lot more money in circulation right now? Was it because corporations went down to their basements and started cracking out you know, dollar bills based off of their printing presses? No, it was because the government started doing that. Like if, if he wanted to come up with an honest, if he wanted to come up with a, a, a answer that would have been absolutely true, that would have, that would have like dinged Republicans, he would have come out and said, Federal Reserve printed trillions of dollars during the last administration. And you know what? That would have been accurate. But to come up with this, like we're going to bring down inflation by taking more money out of the private sector, th- that is patently absurd, what verifiably he's, false. What he's insinuating is that it's corporations that are causing the inflation. And I'm yeah. no fan of the Libertarian Party, but I'm reading this reply tweet from the Libertarian <laughs> Party of Tennessee, yeah. and boy, do they hit the nail on the head right there. Among the wealthiest seems to be the Federal Reserve, which is the source of the inflation. Yeah, well, and, and that's and that's a good point because a lot of, I mean, we can sit here all day long and talk about this as a non sequitur argument. It's ridiculous. It assumes things that aren't true because, again, what is inflation? Inflation is a monetary phenomenon. What it, what it is is the government prints out more fiat currency. They print out more money, right? Or at least that's the current inflation that we're experiencing. And then the, the individual value of each unit of currency, right, each dollar has less value because there's more of them that were put into circulation not, not as a result of increased wealth and productivity, but just because the government did it, right? They just, they printed more money to pay. And and what's fascinating about this is that when they first print all this money, it's not like you experience inflation overnight. No, no. no you, the, the first people to get access to the money, banks, Wall Street, et cetera, they're still getting pretty much parity with the value their, their, of the money. Yeah, their, their purchasing price. It's the longer, it's, it's as it goes into circulation, and you have more transactions, then all of a sudden the market responds to, oh, there, there's a lot more people competing for these scarce resources and we don't have an increase in resources. And so the price of everything has to go up. And so the, and again, the overall purchasing power of your dollar goes down. So that's, that's what we mean by inflation as a monetary phenomenon. But here's what's so fascinating because when Libertarian Party of Tennessee, and again, I, I would say that both of us, I, I, have a, I have a great respect for a lot of libertarian philosophy. Um, 
Oh, I, 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 small I consider, L libertarian yeah, philosophy. I consider yes. myself to be a very liberty leaning, you know, conservative. But when he says among the wealthiest seems to be the Federal Reserve, I think a lot of people look at like, what does that even mean? Like, what does the Federal Reserve actually have? Well, Christian. Yeah, let's take a look at their balance sheet. Charts. So let's look at the balance sheet for so, the Federal Reserve. So we pulled up. And explain um, what this what, yeah, explain so, what this means. So this is the trick that politicians do. They take a subject that is incredibly important, yeah. that is also very complex and difficult to understand, and then they gaslight you into believing complete nonsense. It's not corporations that do this. It's not the evil, greedy, rich people. The source of this problem is the Federal Reserve, and we've got the charts to prove it. By the way, these resources, for those of you that are listening to this rather than watching this, what we're showing the audience here that's watching this is literally from the Federal Reserve's own websites. These aren't, you know, they're not coming from us. They're not coming from, you know, Reason Magazine. They're not yeah. coming from Cato Institute or Heritage. This is from the Federal Reserve. So here's what's called their balance sheet. This goes back to 2008. The Federal Reserve balance sheet is basically how much money do they have when we say printing money, we don't necessarily just mean literally printing money. Yeah. Uh, the Federal Reserve can create money electronically, and then they can go out into the market and they can buy assets. Usually it'll be like treasury bonds or it could be corporate bonds. And when they when they purchase those things, that's that's called increasing the balance sheet. And so what happened before the 2008 crash was the Federal Reserve's balance sheet was about $900 billion. And if you go back here, you can see it. it, it Right before the crash, it gets to about $900 billion. As go, you go forward. as you go forward through time, you can see the 2008 crash, it spikes up to $2 trillion. So what, what that is is the Federal Reserve bought a bunch of assets to try to save the markets during the great crash in 2008. And then you had another round of what's called quantitative easing, which is basically, again, the Federal Reserve money printer running Burr and then them buying assets that happened during the Janet Yellen era. At the very tail end of the of the Obama presidency, you're looking at like 2014, 15, 16. But then it levels off. And you see that near the end of the Obama administration, the beginning of the Trump administration, under Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve is no longer buying any more money. Now, their balance sheet's still massive. It's $4 trillion, mm -hmm. but it leveled off. And then in late 2017 and then throughout 2018, the Federal Reserve started to sell off those assets. And so – not only were they not running the money printer anymore, they were trying to deleverage themselves, which meant that they were trying to return back to what we were at before the which 2008 is, crash, which is the right thing what you to want. do. Yeah. And this, by the way, is, is where we are trying to point out that both sides are responsible for this because we had a lot of Republicans, including Trump, I have to admit, that were mad that Jerome Powell was trying to deleverage, trying to raise interest rates in 2018 and admittedly trying to do the right thing. But it wasn't just Trump. It was many Republicans mm -hmm. That, that did this. And Jerome Powell threw his hands up in the air and basically said, fine, I give up. And so you see this drop as he's trying to deleverage. This is the same time that he's raising interest rates, which are the two things that you needed to do in order to stop the bubble from forming, because there was already a bubble forming in 2018. And he stops at the end of 2018 after what's known as the Christmas crash. If you go back and you look at the stock market, you see this huge dip in December 2018, and that's this process happening. The market was freaking out. Jerome Powell throws his hands up in the air and says, I give up, and he stops. And then you see the money printer turns back on again a little bit. And then you have this thing that came out of China in December 2019, just <laughs> over a year later, a little thing called COVID. Yeah. You might have heard of it. And lo and behold, the response from the Federal Reserve was something that we have never seen in the entire history of modern economics anywhere in the entire world, period. What happened was is that the Federal Reserve's balance sheet went from $4.1 trillion on February 17th, 2020 to $7 trillion 
by May 25th, 2020. So you're looking at February to March, March to April, April to May. In three months, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet went from $4 trillion to $7 trillion. They injected $3 trillion into the economy in three months. That, that is more than, than the response to the 2008 crisis, where it went from $900 billion to $2 trillion. That, that's, that's tremendously more. But it didn't stop there. The money printer kept going. It, it, it continued for the rest of 2021 into 2022. The Federal Reserve's balance sheet just went up and up and up and up and up until finally it got to $8.9 trillion where it currently stands today. And now Jerome Powell is trying to deleverage. Well, good luck with that, buddy. Yeah. This well, is- and what's, what's important for you all to understand about this is that, again, as people – this, this illustrates the absurdity of this idea that the government just hasn't taxed corporations enough because that would stop inflation. Like that it literally has nothing to do with it. So for Nothing the person at home that looks at this chart that's watching or that's listening, though, they might see this chart. By the way, again, you, you can go to the Federal Reserve's – just Google Federal Reserve balance sheet and you can find this yeah. chart. If you look at this chart, though, you might think to yourself, okay, so what does this mean? I mean, so you're telling me that the Federal Reserve bought a whole bunch of stuff. They printed a whole bunch of money, went into the marketplace, bought a whole bunch of stuff. How does that cause inflation? So to show you the next chart that we've got, then this is a direct proof to it. The next chart that we're looking at, also from the Federal Reserve, is the average price of a home in the United States. It's actually the median price of a home in the United States. There's a difference. But this is going back to 2008. And if you look at 2020, by the way, the gray lines represent market crashes. So look at the average home in the United States, um, say, at the beginning of 2020, like January, you know, quarter one of 2020. The average home price in the United States at the beginning of 2020 was $329,000. Look at what happened after that. You see you see a dip mm-hmm. where the COVID crash happens into quarter two down to 322. And then look at what happens after that. It goes up and up and up and up and up and up and up until finally it's $428,000 mm-hmm. for median house in the United States. Now, if you want to go back to the previous balance sheet, Gosh, doesn't it look like that? Wow. There's a correlation. It looks like there? there's a correlation between just printing trillions of dollars. Why is it that at the exact moment that the Federal Reserve started to print five trillion dollars in the span of 24 months, why is it that this spike right here is almost directly correlated with the spike in home prices? And and there's proof of this, by the way, if you go to the third chart that we've got, which is the M2 money supply. Now explain what M2 money supply is. Nick actually gave a good explanation of this. It, right it's before basically the show. money with. I mean, so the, like M one is cash. Mm-hmm. Like what, what money do you have? When you get an M two, now you're talking about assets that you have that are, are easily liquid. Cash or cash equivalent. Yeah, cash. So it, it's stuff that you can you can easily get out of your savings account or or uh, I think some. Um, I think there's some money markets like or whatever. Like bonds yeah, and bonds. stuff like that. It's yeah. stuff that you can easily like sell right then and immediately use. So it, it's the amount of cash that is quickly available to be able to be used within the marketplace. So we're not talking about like a real estate asset that you would have to put on the market, sell, and then get money from. We're talking about something that I can call up the bank right now and be like, hey, liquefy this, this and yeah. then I can go spend it. So when, when you've got that huge amount of, of money just flooding into the marketplace. Yeah. This is basically very, very 
simple explanation. This is basically the amount of money that's in circulation. Theoretically, they okay. could be in circulation. And you see the same exact spike. See the little line, which is this, this is the March 2020 COVID crash right here, this little tiny gray line if you're looking at it. And you see the giant surge in the M2 money supply, directly correlated with the increase in home prices, directly correlated with the size of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. These are all correlations right here. Mm -hmm. And you can go back and you can look at the stock market. I, we didn't even show that, but if you pull up the S&P 500 and you pull up the NASDAQ, you see the exact same thing. You see a dip in March, and then you see just this upward march from, from March 2020 into April, May, June, the whole entire rest of the year of 2020, and then into 2021, all the way up until the point that I wrote my prediction on Facebook last February saying we're in a giant bubble. Yeah. Well, and, and like, so to round this one out with, with this whole inflation tweet, Again, the, the narrative that you're starting to see from the left is that inflation, and they're they're kind of conflating inflation with just rising prices, right? Those two things, those two those two things correspond. They're not exactly the same thing. You can have rising prices without inflation, all right? If if there is more demand for a particular good or service, but there's less supply on it, you're going to get higher prices without, you know, the Fed printing more money, right? That, that can lead to high prices. What they're trying to, in, what they're trying to input in your mind is that higher prices are somehow a result of something other than what they're doing through monetary policy. So this whole idea of if only the government, and, and what's so absurd about this particular tweet, and we're going to go into some other ones that other people have made that are, are wrong, but actually make more sense. When I say this is a non sequitur, what I mean is this is a non-starter. When he says that if only the government was taxing corporations more, it, it would it would reduce inflation. I, I can't even think of a, a, you know, a more absurd equivalent like what yeah. do you if only the government just took more money out of the private sector and then spent it themselves that would lower inflation yeah, it, it, well, two things it looks like the white house's social media team woke up and said how can we get a hundred a hundred thousand likes on a tweet without yeah. even thinking about if it's true and then two they don't you know does the Biden administration understand that you take more money away from corporations that they have to raise their prices it, okay well, it's it, one of two things yeah either they know better. Part of me thinks that they know better and they're yeah. being malicious and they're they're gaslighting people into believing something that is patently false. Or no, they're they're actually that stupid. Well, and and I you know, I generally have a rule, right? I don't I don't chalk up to malfeasance that which can be attributed to you know, stupidity. This is not stupidity. They they know better. Um what this is is when you know, again, this goes back to that theme that we were talking about in the opening, right? When you know that something bad is coming economically, and you can't stop it because there's been so much bad policy that has fueled it, that there's a certain degree of inertia. It starts being, who do we blame? And you can see right here in this tweet, the way they, the way they want people to look at this is corporations did this to us. And all I want people to understand here is I don't care if you like corporations. I don't care if you don't like corporations. You can't blame them for inflation. Oh, but what about billionaires? Oh, okay. And which is which which goes <laughs> what right about into the our evil, next greedy, rich people. So let's go to AOC's billionaires of the problem tweet. So AOC tweets out this: the number of billionaires in the U.S. couldn't even fill an apartment building, but the number of people they negatively impact is only growing. All the U.S. billionaire votes combined couldn't even come in second for an NY City Council election. That's why they stay pressed, whatever. But here's what I think is interesting about this: this is once again. This is once again, this idea, this posturing. Um, and it's the idea that, well, billionaires are the problem because you see the, the number of people that they negatively impact is only growing. So 
why is this effective messaging? Well, first of all, it, it feeds on a, a human trait that we all deal with envy, right? Greed and envy is something that all of us can contend authorization with. as well. Yes. Um, so the idea is, is that obviously Alexandria Cortez is not a billionaire, right? I'm, I'm willing to bet the vast majority of her constituents aren't billionaires. So the political math of doing something like this adds up. Now, if she had, if she had isolated someone based off of their race or their sex or something like that, we would instantly realize, oh my gosh, that's racist. That's sexist. And the math wouldn't add up. And the math wouldn't necessarily add up. But when you can do it based off of economic, you know, current economic status, because that's the other thing I like current economic status, this becomes really easy. And, and this is illustrated every time someone goes and does like a man on the street interview, woman on the street interview and says, do you think the rich pay their fair share? Well, again, in somebody's mind, all they know is, well, I'm not rich and I don't like, you know, how much I'm paying taxes. And I'm constantly told by my political leaders that the rich aren't paying their fair share. So of course they're not. Okay. Well, what do you think a fair share would be? Well, they should at least pay 20%. And then lo and behold, it's like, okay, well, they're actually paying 40. Like, oh my gosh, really? So this is one of those things where this is a political strategy. The political strategy is the source of your problems is this very, very small group of wealthy elites and they need to be punished. And if you elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she'll take what they have because after all, they're the ones, you know, hurting the number of people they negatively impact. Now, here's what's, here's what is so brilliant about this on a simplified level. Everybody, everybody can think of some billionaire that they don't like. And then that billionaire becomes the personification of anybody out there that happens to have a billion dollars. Not to mention the fact that if you really break down what she wants, it's not just billionaires she's after. She's after far more than that. But I, I want to bring up, by the way, a lot of these billionaires' wealth is tied up in non-cash assets. Yeah, yeah. They they own they might own real estate or stocks or one or they might own a company. This is something that irritates me all the time is like when the market goes down, they say Elon Musk lost, you know, X billion dollars. Yeah, that's because Tesla stock went down five percent. Yeah. That doesn't mean that he literally has a wallet with a billion yeah. dollar bills in it and <laughs> it's just walking around. Like yeah. a lot of these billionaires' wealth is tied up in companies that they created yeah. and they're not going to sell. They might sell some shares every now and then, but they're not going to give up control. Elon Musk is not going to sell every share of Tesla because he wants to run the company. Well, and I, here's what I think we need to understand about this. So why would she do this? I think AOC might actually believe this. I do too. Be because ultimately when it comes down to it, she does believe I know whenever we call someone a Marxist, it's like, I'm not saying that she's a Marxist in the sense that she literally wants to realize Karl Marx's dream for political, but she definitely buys in to Marxist ideology when it comes to the way that the, you know, the way society should largely be um, arranged and who the villains are within the society. class struggle narrative, the class struggle Marxism narrative she buys into. And, and here's the problem. So when you're, when you're thinking to yourself, how do I respond to this? Right? Like I know on some level that this is ridiculous, but I also don't want to be the person sitting around the coffee table going, Oh, I love billionaires. Right. Here's the problem. Whenever you see someone making generalized distinctions like this on, on the level of, if you're a billionaire, therefore you're a bad person, you should be concerned because that goes right to what Christian was saying, right? That's a form of otherization. And we've seen other times in history when people do this and they're not doing it based off of their actions, right? It's one thing to say child molesters are a problem. It's another thing to say like, you know, murderers are a problem. It's completely different to say, because you have a billion dollars, you are therefore a bad individual. Like that the, the only way that you could have gotten that was through 
you know, screwing somebody else. And that is the, that is the message that they're putting across. And this fits right into that narrative that we were talking about. Here's the problem. Again, I can point to Putin who is a billionaire and be like, yeah, that guy is a billionaire because he's a, he's essentially a Russian oligarch. He has used the power and coercive power of government in order to acquire his wealth and, and through ill-gotten gains. But the reason why I don't like him is not because he happens to be a billionaire. The reason why I don't like Putin is because how he got his money and what he does with it. On the other side, there are other people that have made a ton of money in this country. And how did they do it? By providing goods and services to people. Who voluntarily wanted to buy them. Who voluntarily bought it for him, right? Like, like, hey, you, you created, like Jeff Bezos. I'm not a fan of Jeff Bezos. But I think all of us at one point in our life have probably appreciated Amazon in the last couple yeah. of years. I'm not a fan of Bill Gates. Yeah. Or Mark Zuckerberg, but I use Microsoft and Facebook products. Yeah, and I don't use it because I wanted them to become billionaires. I use it because it improved my life. And so by not making this distinction, she's actually engaging in something that is far more morally nefarious than it, than it looks because she's putting herself up as, oh, I'm just taking care of the little guys against these mean, evil billionaires. No, no, no. First, tell me, because guess what? There are people that are poor that have done really bad things, and that's why. There are people that are wealthy that have done really bad things, and that's why. And there are people that are wealthy that have done really good things. There are people that are poor that have done really good things. When you don't make a distinction between how someone actually earned the wealth that they have, and you just say, if your wealth reaches this level, you're a bad guy, you're a villain, you need to watch out for whoever's putting that out there. Because that is someone that is willing to use arbitrary distinctions in order to otherize someone. And the only reason they want to otherize them is they want to hurt them. So, Hamilton, I know that you found... Um another tweet that I think encapsulates a huge chunk of the left-wing narrative on what is causing the massive. Uh, so like we already explained, by the way, in, in case you didn't get the memo, <laughs> inflation is being caused by the federal reserve printing $5 trillion in less than 24 months. Elizabeth Warren thinks but, uh, different. Elizabeth Warren seems to think differently. <laughs> she said yeah. corporate executives are admitting what Americans already know all too well. They are jacking up prices to expand their profit margins. We must put a stop to this corporate price gouging. So, I, Nick, him, I know that you've got a lot to say here. Oh I want to start with the, the railing on her by saying, brother, or should I say sister, <laughs> you should know better. You want to talk about so maliciousness, right? You know, versus stupidity. This is maliciousness. This is an act of gaslighting. Because Elizabeth Warren is smart, smart enough to realize that the Federal Reserve printed 40% of the money supply in less than two years. I'm sorry. Walmart is not the reason that things are more expensive. We just talked about this before. It's the Federal Reserve's monetary policies are the reason. But you know what? That's not a good scapegoat for her. That's no. not how you get votes. So you know what people like Elizabeth Warren do? They gaslight the public into yeah. believing something that is easier to swallow for political reasons rather than tell them the truth of what is happening. The truth of what is happening is the Federal Reserve made the dollar 40% less valuable than it used to be. And so therefore, corporations who have to, you know, 
They can't run it. Per, uh, unfortunately, I, I, I hate to break it to socialists, but corporations cannot run at perpetual losses and yeah. stay in existence. Yeah, they're not the as government. They, as, as much, <laughs> yeah, yeah, as much as they want to. But you know what? That's not a good argument to make. You're not going to get a bunch of retweets if you do that. Yeah. So Elizabeth Warren goes out there and says corporate executives are the problem. It's the evil, greedy business owners and corporations that are ro- jacking up the price. Well, but, but here's here's the part. Here's the reason why this plays with people because this this is a little bit different, right? This is actually a little bit more strategic. Because when AOC is like, oh, if you have a billion dollars, you're an evil person. Like, okay, that's that's a pretty simplistic narrative that doesn't really go anywhere. When Joe Biden says we got to tax corporations more, right? You, you're starting to see a, a trend here. When she says this, here's what's interesting. It is absolutely true that a business, not just corporations, any business, wants to sell their product in order to get as much profit as possible. And there is nothing inherently wrong with that. And you know how I know? Because everyone I know that has ever looked for a job tries to sell their labor at the highest price possible, yeah. right? There, there's a competing interest between someone that is selling you something and you buying it. And those competing interests equal the equilibrium, which is to say, you have something I want, right? I have something you want. I have the money. You have the product or the service. You can't charge whatever you want because I can go to somebody else, yep. right? Or I can find an alternative. You have to charge the most that I'm willing to pay. And the way we know that that's a mutually beneficial transaction is if we both agree to it voluntarily. I'm not forced to do it. You're not forced to do it. What's amazing about this is, yes, people want to sell for a higher profit. Okay. There's nothing, again, nothing inherently wrong with that. Profit is actually an indicator that you have done something in an effective and efficient way, provided that somebody is voluntarily doing business with you instead of being forced, like by the government. What's interesting here is when she talks about price gouging. As if there's some universe out there where corporations without the help of the government, this is an important distinction, can simply go out there and say, well, I want the price to be double. And and consumers will just be like, oh, well, gosh, I guess we got, I guess we got to, no, that's not what happens. The whole purpose of competition within the marketplace is that if somebody comes out there and charges way too much for a particular product, somebody else is able to compete and steal their business away. And how do we know that happens? Because it happens all the time in this country. Some of the biggest companies in this country 50 years ago don't exist today because somebody else came in with a better product, a better service at a better price. Yeah. Look at what happened to Sears. Yeah. And and go back to the other tweet here for a second, because there's another thing I got to, I got to hit on here real quick. Um, Again, what is so wrong about this is that the other the the reason why I say this is actually a little bit more clever way to put it is because she can point to balance sheets and say, well, look, they are making higher profits until you start to recognize that the way that she's determining higher profit margins fails to take into account two things. One, you may have more dollars on your balance sheet, but if they don't buy the same thing that that same amount of dollars did a year ago, you don't have more wealth. You don't actually have more profit. The irony of that is she's using corporations to blame for inflation, but she's justifying that. Well, for price that. increases. Yeah. Yes. She's justifying that by looking at corporate balance sheets and saying they're at an all-time high, which, by the way, is not true. Not every corporation's at no. an all-time high in terms of how much money they're making. But she's saying they're making more money than they did last year. Because the value of the dollars got down. So yeah. she's not applying her same inflation argument to the balance sheet of the corporations themselves. If a corporation made a hundred, you know, hypothetically, yeah. if a business made a hundred dollars one year 
and then $105 the next year, you could be like, oh my God, they're making more money than Record they ever did profits. before. But if inflation's 10%, yeah. I, the $105 is in raw dollar amounts actually worth less than yeah. the $100 yeah. they made the year before. And, and you know what? You know how people understand this? People are like, oh, wages have gone up 5.5%. Yeah, but infl inflation's at 8.5%. So you're not better off. But if I wanted to, if, I wanted, gonna apply that if I wanted to, to use, if I wanted to use Elizabeth Warren's argument, I could come in and say workers are making more in this country than they've ever made before. But everyone would know that yeah. was absurd. Here's the other thing too that never gets taken into account, and this this is clever because what they will do is they will be very very selective on when they look at the profit margins. Because here's another thing that often ends up happening when you have shortages due to supply chain crises on top of when you're inflating the currency. So now what you have is more dollars for fewer goods and services that always causes prices to go up. If you're a business, a lot of people, a lot, this is how politicians will be like, well, when, when they were, you know, all the gas they're selling you right now, they bought that when oil was a hundred dollars a barrel, but now they're charging you as if it was 105 or 110, right? They're price gouging you. No, <laughs> What they're doing is what entrepreneurs do, and that is they're predicting what the price is going to be in the future. And so what they sell it, what they sell it to you for now takes into account two things. It's not just what they bought it for and their overhead and everything else. They also have to sell it to you at a price which will allow them to restock based off of what they have to predict the price will be in the future. Well, Liz... I got bad news for you. When the government is throwing more money into the economy and just arbitrarily printing it off, when you're advocating for more taxes, making it more expensive to them run their business, when you're pushing for more green energy policies, when you're pushing for more regulations, fines and fees, they have to take that into account for everything they're selling today, not just when you happen to implement it. They have to predict it. That's the function the entrepreneur plays in the economy. So when you are deliberately dishonest, by only taking in certain factors into account, you are lying to people or you're an idiot. And neither one is someone I want in charge of, of you know, fiscal and monetary policy. All right, let's, let's go to one of my favorite people ever. Bernie Sanders, the United States has the most dysfunctional, inefficient, bureaucratic, and expensive healthcare system in the world. It's time for Medicaid for all. I actually responded to this can, one on Twitter. Can we actually lump oh. this into the other tweet too that he that he sent. Can we talk about both of those at the same time? Because there was another tweet that he said something about Burning gas, gas prices. prices. Yeah. Greed, greed, greed. While Americans are struggling at the pump in the first three months of this year, 21 oil and gas companies made over 41 billion in profits, more than double their profits from last year. The problem is not inflation. The problem is corporate greed. Again, you, you're starting to see the narrative, right? It's always the same thing. It's not inflation. It's not them. It's not the government. No, 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 it's, it's evil, greedy corporations that apparently now develop some sort of mass magical power where they can charge whatever they want. And, and there's, there's no com there's no competitive force to actually like, here's what's so that. disingenuous about what he's talking about. Guess what people were doing last year? Stuck at home. Yeah. They weren't driving anywhere. They weren't going anywhere. Oh, and why, why were they not going anywhere? Partially because of COVID. The other part was because the government the shut government down shut the economy. Down. They told well, them you can't. Behold, when the government shuts down the economy and nobody's commuting to work and nobody's traveling, ExxonMobil isn't going to be making any money. I, I remember actually at the time when ExxonMobil was struggling to pay its dividend to its shareholders. It, they, they came this close to cutting their dividend because they were bleeding money. They were bleeding yeah. out on the floor in November, 2020. And, um, 
because no, the whole country was shut down. Nobody was going anywhere. Gas prices were like 150 here. Mm-hmm. They, they might have been lower in some places in the country. If 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 just corporate greed alone is the reason for healthcare or gas prices to go up, why wasn't Exxon charging four dollars a gallon yeah. in September 2020 when the economy was shut down? Well, and, and it is because they, they couldn't get away with it. Yeah, and when it, and his original his original thing too on the, on the whole healthcare idea is like, oh, it, it, it's expensive and bureaucratic. So your solution is more bureaucracy. What's the Thomas Sowell quote about healthcare in general? About you know oh, the it, same people who you know, say that, Oh yeah. The same, the same people that we can, uh, the same people that say that we, you know, we can't afford healthcare as it currently is thinks that we can add a massive bureaucracy and, you know, and then it'll be somehow become more affordable. Like if we can't afford it without the massive bureaucracy, how do we afford it with the massive bureaucracy? But that's what he's essentially saying. Again, the reason why I point this one out, cause this one's a little bit different. Obviously this greed, greed, greed one is the same, the healthcare one. It's because they've already decided what all the solutions are. The solutions are more government power. It's them having more control over the economy. And so the bad guys are always anybody they don't control. And then they never take responsibility for what they what they actually do control. They do have control over the taxes, over the regulations, over the fines, over the fees, over the processes for new drugs getting approved, over the patents um, that, that now can be exercised on a drug that was made free in 1922, right? They do this. And then when it fails or when it injects bureaucracy and expense into the system, do they ever come back and say, you know what, maybe that good thing we were trying to do, maybe the process that we tried to implement it is not producing the favorable results. Maybe we should rethink it. No, never. No, it is always, they are the solution and they don't mind lying to you about it because it is so easy to otherize somebody else as the source of the problem. They're the bad guy, the source of all evil and frustration. And if only, mm, if only, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and AOC had the power that they need to truly the irony go is, after these people. The It'll irony is they have the power. They're the ones in DC making policy. I all what all of this illustrates, and I think we have two more tweets to show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So, so we we can go to the next one because it, it kind of goes into this. So the irony of, of, of this one, and, and Nick, I'll let you read it off. Uh, yeah, the, so this is Elizabeth one. The more student debt President Biden cancels, the more we narrow the racial wealth gap among borrows and the bigger the boost to America's economic future. This is the right thing to do. Hashtag cancel student debt. So first off, if we cancel student debt, inflation is going to go up even more. Yeah. That, that's just a fact because- because what will what will people with student debt have more well, buying power? No, no, no. That's not the issue. It's not that they'd have more buying power. I mean, the, it, it, the, indirectly the money, that this, would be it. But yeah. what would be causing this? And Nick can explain this probably a little bit better than I can. But but what would be causing this is the government's going to be the taxpayer. It's not the government. It's the taxpayer. It's yeah. us. It's you who's listening. They're going to be footing the bill for it. Yeah, that's more government spending. Yeah, government spending, government printing, government spending is what is driving inflation through the roof. We have all-time high government spending, and we have all-time high government printing. Those two things are the reason that inflation is eight point five percent. And by the way, inflation is probably over eight point five percent because yeah. the government is also the one in charge of measuring the level of inflation. Well, and here's the important thing to understand because this is one that that actually a, a lot of people resonate with because they feel like the government is engaged in predatory lending, which I think is actually true. I think some of what they did was absolutely predatory lending. Um, The interest rates seem unreasonable to a lot of people, right? You can't get out of this through bankruptcy law, right? So all all of those things, people are going to be like, yeah, this does seem, this does seem problematic. Here's what you need to understand about this whole movement to cancel student debt. You can't, you can't, I, I don't mean it would be a bad idea if you did. 
I mean, it is literally impossible to cancel the debt. All you can do is transfer the debt onto somebody that never took out the loan. And what we found when you actually look at who actually has the vast majority of student loan debt and you look at the poorest people that have it, it's about 8%. When you look at the wealthiest people have student loan, it's like 32 32%. So don't let anybody fool you that this is somehow about justice for poor people. This is about justice for poor people. You know what this is about? This is about rewarding the Democratic Party's constituency yes. because people with college degrees increasingly are voting Democrat more than yeah, anybody else. That's a good point. Yeah. It, they, what they are doing, the, the Democrats do this all the time. Yes. Where they play these identity politics games in order to try to divide the electorate in half and pick the larger half of the electorate and then pander to that half in order to try to win an election. That's all that they're interested in is, is simply the raw pursuit of power. And by the way, there's plenty of Republicans that do the same thing. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying that there's not, but this this is what – when I say good politicians, I don't mean this as a compliment. This is what good politicians do where they look at the electorate and then they they, they kind of slice through the middle of it. And one slice is always going to be large. You're never yep. going to get it perfectly, right? You know, they, they cut a slice – through the cake of the electorate, and then they look at which is the larger cake, and then they try to just pander to that cake. And Elizabeth Warren is pandering to what she increasingly sees as her party base, which are people that have a bunch of college degrees. Yeah. And those people make more money than people that don't have college degrees, but they also have more debt usually. Well, and, and, and the interesting thing about this as well is that the reason why this also resonates with people is because they they understand the idea that like, oh, yeah, if you didn't have $100,000 in college debt, you would be able to buy a house or you would be able to buy a car. You would, and the reason why Christian says that would actually contribute to inflation at this point is not because we think college students having more purchasing power is a bad thing. It's a question of how do you get that purchasing power? Well, if, you've, if, you've, if the money has been spent and it has, right? And and we just canceled that loan. Again, you can't cancel the transfers. So the only way that that person will have, quote, more purchasing power is if you steal purchasing power from somebody else through higher taxes, or you steal everybody's purchasing power by simply printing more money in order to pay off that or debt. borrowing that you, it. Yeah, that you assumed. And so this is the problem. Once again, it's this whole idea of it, it might sound superficially plausible to somebody that, yeah, if we just took all this, all these poor students that work so hard to get through college who can't buy a house, if we, if we eliminate this debt, then they'd be able to buy a house. Okay. Well, first of all, your housing prices would go up because you'd have people that were now being able to spend money because they, they had already spent that money. That's the important thing to understand. It's not like that money, they had already spent it. So the only way the government can balance that student loan debt sheet is by increasing taxes on people that didn't take out the loan or by printing more money and devaluing everybody's dollar even more. So, so this is what is so intellectually dishonest about this. One of the things that we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast was the everything bubble. We yeah. didn't say it was the housing bubble. We didn't say it was the stock market bubble. We said it was the everything bubble. That includes student loans. That includes yeah. college. One of the things that gets lost on this is the reason that college has gone. I think the cost of a college degree has gone up something along the lines of like eight times inflation. Oh, it's ridiculous. Since like the seventies or eighties, like eight times inflation. I might, I might be off by a magnitude or two, but I guarantee you it's going up faster than inflation. I, I, I would bet the farm on that. And part of the reason is because the federal government is subsidizing. Oh it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Nick, you can make a better argument on this well, than they, anybody that I know they're, about they're, what is causing the student loan yeah. bubble. So why why are why are because th this is weird because it's this per it's like this perpetual motion machine with respect to leftist policy. So they say, oh my gosh, college is really expensive, and they they combine that with and college is necessary in order to get a really good job. So here's what we're going to do: we're going to provide student loans for students that wouldn't necessarily be able to qualify for that. 
And every, the uh, population looks and goes, well, yeah, you know, people that go to college tend to make more money. And, uh, you know, if we're helping people that wouldn't otherwise be able to afford to go to college, well, then we'll have more people making more money and this is going to pay for itself. And that seems superficially plausible until you look at the perverse incentives, which are added into the system by the government being the one that takes over the loan process. Because if you're going to get a loan to go to college from a private sector lender, they got a couple questions for you. Question one, how good did you do in high school? Because they want to know that you actually developed the sort of studying habits and whatnot that you need in order to be successful in college. Step two, what are you majoring in? Because they want to know that you're majoring in something that's actually going to get you that good paycheck to pay back the loan. Now, take them completely out of the process and put it in the hand of the politicians. Do they have the same incentive before they give you the loan? No, because A, it's not their money. They don't have a fiduciary responsibility to the taxpayer. Secondly, they have every incentive to get as many of you dependent on the college loan debt as possible so they can then run around and say, well, the solution here is to forgive the college loan debt. And what happens on the other side? The universities love this because now they can raise rates. It's an unlimited source of money. For and them. not only can they raise rates, like the most pernicious part, everyone talks about increased, everybody talks about increased price of college. That's actually not the most pernicious thing what universities are doing right now. Here's the most pernicious thing. They can raise the rates and give you less value for the degree that you actually sure. pay for. Because now... I am not trying to get you to come to my school with these thousands of dollars you automatically have that came from a private sector lender who is interested in the quality, the economic viability of the degree you get. No, the government's doing it. No, nope. I can offer all kinds of degrees. I can offer all kinds of crazy classes. I can push gender studies degrees and charge you $50,000 a year tuition, if not more. And then you leave with a worthless degree. And not only, this is the crazy part, not only does it not hurt the university, not only does it not hurt the Democrat politician, that they essentially fleece the taxpayers in order to pay tens of thousands of dollars for a worthless degree, it's actually beneficial to the politicians that gave the loan and the universities because they get to go right back to the electorate and say, how horrible is it that this person can't get a job? How bad is the economy? You know, this is capitalism's fault. What we need is to forgive that student loan. University doesn't care. They're getting their money. No, no, the university does care. They want it because yeah. if if you tell a group, an industry, the, the college university industry, that the federal government will finance at no cost yeah. the full ride for people, doesn't, you know, we're, we're going to forgive all the debt, right? If you, t if you signal that message that price is no object because the Federal Reserve is going to cover the tab. Colleges are going to, I mean, college, again, yeah. I said college tuition is going up multiple times what inflation is. If you think college is expensive right now, wait until you see how much it's going to, it's going to cost when yeah. it's free. Yeah. Well, and, and, and again, the, the worst part about this is not only have they racked up student debt and racked up the price of tuition, they actually have more and more worthless degrees that they're offering as a result of enticing people into this environment with the false belief that a degree equals a good paycheck. no. Quality skills respected in the marketplace. Yep. Now, I've seen people come up before. I'm like, you know, it's not all about money, Nick. Well, it sure as hell is when you want someone else to pay off your loan, isn't it, Sparky? Right? No. It, yes, when you go to college, if you, want, if you want to major in 16th century French poetry, I, I think you should be able to do that. I do not think you should be able to demand that somebody else pays for that degree. And that's the problem that we're in right now. And, and again, it's just so frustrating because it, it's a combination. Christian said it best. This is a process whereby certain politicians get to reward their base for voting the way they want them to. Mm -hmm. And they get to reward them by using everybody else's money in the process. 
and then making you feel like you're a bad person if you don't want to pay off somebody else's debt. In the words of Bastiat, it's legalized plunder. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Is this our last one? Yeah, we have one more debt when you go on. This is this is funny too. President Biden visited a family farm today in Kankakee. If you're from Illinois, I apologize if we butcher that. Kankanoi, Illinois, where he announced new actions to address Putin's price hike, make food more affordable, and lower costs for farmers. So you know what I find so funny about this narrative? Yeah. I'm old enough to remember there is no inflation. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's the narrative that was being made in February 2021 when I wrote that Facebook post yep. predicting what was going to be happening. There is no inflation. And then it was inflation is transitory. I remember Jerome Powell going before yeah. Congress multiple times telling people inflation is transitory. It's going to, it's going to go through, you know, mm-hmm. so, as soon as the economy reopens, we're going to be fine. And then it was, Oh, inflation is not that big. It's yeah. not that bad of a deal. You know, it's, it's not that high. It's not as high as you think it is. And then it was, Oh, well, inflation was actually Trump's fault. Yeah. I remember that one. That, that, in fact, that's one you're still seeing. But now Trump's been replaced with the boogeyman of Vladimir Putin, who, by the way, is a terrible person. Yeah. Not, I'm not defending anything about Putin. The invasion of Ukraine. There's no doubt that it, Russia invading a country in Europe is contributing to some of the problems we're having. But oh, it yeah. is minuscule compared to it. The act of Russia invading Ukraine, let's say hypothetically, is 1% of the reason for the problem that we're in. And yet it is 90% of the explanation that you're seeing from people in the White House for why we're in the disaster that we're currently in. And the reason for it is because of politics. Mm-hmm. As you said at the beginning of this podcast, they know that the general public knows there's something wrong. That when you go to the grocery store, that it's more expensive than it used to be. That you know the, the price of gas is higher than it ever has been at any point in the entire country's history. They, they know that they can't lie to people or gaslight them into believing that there's not a problem because- you know, John Q. Public knows that there's a problem. So the response now is, as you said, shifting the blame. And yeah. it's just amazing that whatever is in the news cycle, that's now the boogeyman for the reason that we're in this problem right now. It's never the Federal Reserve's fault, yeah. and, and let alone Congress's fault. Oh, or- and I, gu- I guarantee you, as he's talking about Putin's price hike, which again, first of all, total blame shifting. You know, again, can Putin be, can the invasion of Ukraine um, account for some increases in marketplace price? Sure. But the, it's a fraction compared to everything else that is going on with respect to policy. Second of all, make food more affordable and lower cost for farmers. I guarantee you what he means is more subsidies. Because that, that is always, the Democrat solution is never, we're going to reduce the regulations, we're going to reduce your taxes. Um, it, it's, it's never, we're going to you know, make it easier for, for you to produce, right? Because their environmental policy won't allow for more large-scale production. The regulations that they have through the FDA won't allow for smaller farmers to be able to sell their produce to, to smaller markets and point-to-point sales. And as soon as those smaller farmers become big farmers, then they're the problem. <laughs> well, so it, it's this whole idea of like, this is, this is garbage. Like he, he was pushing for ethanol again um, to, to help with overall gas price, which by the way, at the, the long-term benefits of ethanol are, are crap because it destroys your engine. And then guess what happens when you subsidize farmers to put their corn into ethanol production as opposed to food up. production? Food prices go up because it's not just corn. I actually saw somebody, well, you know, who cares if corn's a little bit more expensive? Like, moron, do you understand that the, the sort of things that are used for ethanol don't just affect the price of corn? You know who cares? It affects- Pretty much every, go ahead. You know who cares if corn is more expensive? Corn producers? 19th century Britain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have a whole line of that. But, but this is, the, the, again, the problem is, is they never look back to, okay, how is the government, how are government policies negatively impacting the ability for farmers to produce more? That's not the, no, that's not the question. It's just, we're just going to give more money to farmers. 
and, and that'll make it better. Or what they did in the 1930s, this was crazy. So at a time when Americans were legitimately starving, I'm not talking about now where we say that, oh, well, people have food insecurity because, you know, no, Americans were, a significant amount of Americans were actually hungry and not getting it, were malnutrition as a result of, of the Great Depression. The federal government at that same time was subsidizing farmers not to grow things. Or to destroy and then food they crops. Would, and then they would buy surplus crops. The federal government would buy surplus livestock and crops. And then they would go and they would give them to hungry people. Oh, wait, no, that's not what they did. They destroyed it. So these are the same people that want to blame Putin or want to blame greedy corporations for what it is that they're doing, the perverse incentives they've created. And it, it is, I cannot emphasize enough. We cannot stop everything that is about to happen. You just can't. Oh, it's the, too the, late now. The seeds, were, the seeds for this have been sown in some cases over a century ago, in other cases for decades, and in some cases in the last four years, right? And, and or, in the last, or in the last 24 months. Or in the last 24 yeah. months. And, and the bottom line is we're, we're not going to be able to avoid it. There's going to be pain. The real question is, is will we properly diagnose why we're having this pain? And will we actually be able to address the underlying issues as opposed to just taking this placebo that might make us feel better about some of the symptoms while at the same time actually making us more sick than we already are? I right. think that's a great way to start the, the conclusion of the, yeah. <laughs> the making the argument segment for us, Nick. Go ahead, Nick. Make well, the, help us make the argument on this. Okay, so here's here's what's most important. We, we went through all these different things that you're seeing from the left when it comes to higher prices, when it comes to um, you know food shortages, supply chain crises, rising tuition costs, all of these things. And the same politicians are saying the same thing that they always have, that what's lacking is that they don't have enough power to either confiscate money from other people and give it to you, or they don't have the power to properly regulate and control the marketplace. And what they're failing to actually identify is a couple of things. One, it's proper diagnosis of the problem. Inflation is not something that is arbitrarily caused by a couple of businesses rising prices. Businesses more often than not rise prices as a result of two things, supply and demand issues, and ultimately, in this case with inflation, whether or not the overall value of your dollar has been decreased as a result of the government just arbitrarily printing more paper dollars. Right. So you have to properly diagnose inflation for what it is and how it has this negative impact on prices across everything. The other thing that we need to understand is that whenever we talk about things, whether it's student debt, whether it's the increasing cost of healthcare, before you let any politician tell you that the reason why this is happening is greed, I just want you to remind them of two things. One, being greedy doesn't actually do anything unless there's an action involved. And two, Politicians are every bit as greedy as anybody else. In fact, I would argue more so in many cases because they have the power to use force to get what they want as opposed to private sector businesses, which have to actually convince you to do business with them. So the perverse incentive that is already created within government to be able to use power to get what they want is something that we need to associate with some of these greed problems that we have. And then finally, here's what we need to recognize. Most of the problems with rising prices, whether it's prescription drugs, whether it's healthcare, whether it's college tuition, whether it's supply chain crises, you can point directly back to some sort of government intervention that was made into the economy in the form of higher taxes, more regulations, more fees, more fines, and more barrier to entry. It's really simple. Prices are connected to supply and demand. If there is more demand, you have to have more supply in order to cre create that equilibrium. 
the government is the primary force in the world right now that is artificially restricting supply, causing prices to go up, and then telling you that all you need to do is give them more power and they'll make it go away. Ladies and gentlemen, they can't. And they need to be blamed for what's going on. I don't mean a particular political party. I mean a perverse economic philosophy, and I don't care which politician spews it. If it's bad economic policy, it doesn't work. And it will yield bad results, create perverse incentives, and hurt people. What is needed more than ever, and we have seen this before, all the way back to the early 1920s, what we need more now than ever is for the government to get its monetary policy in order. We need to start returning back towards sound money to where the government cannot just automatically inflate the currency whenever it wants to try to pay some bills at your expense. Inflation is a hidden tax. Always remember that. Secondly, we need more. We need less government spending because every time the government is spending money, it had to get it from somewhere and it's either inflating the currency, it's borrowing it against future generations, or it's taking it from you directly in taxes. So for every, every dollar the government hands you and says, look what we did. Just remember, they took that dollar out of the private sector in the first place, robbing you of a potential opportunity, of a potential purchase, robbing you of what you would have done with your money and giving special favor to not only politicians, but those that have the best lobbyists. So we need sound fiscal policy. We need less government spending. And we need more freedom within the marketplace. Everything the government can possibly do right now to make it easier for you to work, to invest, to get a job, to start a company, that's what it should be focused on. Instead, they're doing the exact opposite. They are robbing you of the very opportunities that you need at the time when you need them the most. And then they're giving you a handout in the form of a government check, in the form of a government program, and hoping that it will distract you from the fact that they're the ones that created this problem in the first place. So as, as usual, what is needed is more freedom within the marketplace, more freedom within how you live your life and spend your money, not more government control. Nick, there are some, definitely some resources that we could uh, tell our people about. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think there's, there's a couple of basic resources that are really important here. And, and once again, this is going to come as no surprise when I list Thomas Sowell as one of the people that you should look at mm -hmm. um, looking at economics. But I'm going to give you some specific books. The guy has written dozens of books. I'm going to give you some very specific ones. You either need to read these books or if you don't have time, which I completely understand, go on Uncommon Knowledge. Um, or a couple other places where they actually go through and they explain certain principles and they talk to Thomas Sowell and he does a great job. He's very easy to listen to. We're talking about like 30 to 40 minute things, right? You can do this. It's easy to listen to in the car, easy to watch at home on it's, YouTube. It's not even work. It's actually fun. It is fun. So, but here's the book, Basic Economics, Discriminations and Disparities, Wealth, Poverty, and Politics. These are three books that I would highly recommend. If you got time to read, read these ones, or again, go and look for Thomas Sowell's interviews where he's talking about these things because he does such a great job of refuting so much of the, the false narratives that we've heard. Another one that is, is a, a, a classic, right? Is uh, Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. Very short read, uh, but there's certain principles that he talks about in there with respect to perverse and, and positive incentives that once you read them, you will sit there and think like, why didn't I think of it this way before? It's just, it, it really is this eye-opening experience when you read economics in one lesson. And the third resource I'm going to give you, and this is a fun one. Um, we're talking, I think it's five minutes or whatnot, but there's these two, <laughs> there's these two economists uh, that did these videos. One is called um, Fight of the Century. And it's basically like a, a mock debate between 
uh, Frederick Hayek. A rap battle. Debate. A rap battle between Frederick Hayek and I didn't. I didn't want to say that. Uh, I didn't want to lose him right off the bat. It? Frederick it's Hayek good. and John Maynard Keynes, <laughs> right? Because the the two the two most influential uh, influential economists probably within the 20th century with respect to kind of the core belief within free markets or centrally planned economies is John Maynard Keynes for centrally planned economies more you know. Uh, government spending and yeah. things like that versus more free market economics, the Austrian school to some degree, the Chicago school under Milton Friedman, but it's high. And I, I know what you're thinking. You're like, this has got to be the cheesiest, dumbest thing. I've, it it's actually, actually really is. Good. It was incredibly well produced, but they've got, they've got one called fight of the century and they've got one called uh fair, the boom and bust. And they do an excellent job of explaining some of these problems in a way. Like it got to the point where my kids, <laughs> My kids could explain the Austrian theory of the business cycle because they had memorized this rap battle. So my prediction that I made in February, I wrote that after rewatching the Fear the Boom and Bust yeah. video. Um, it, 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 it's it entertaining. It's we'll funny. link it in the description. It's okay. entertaining. It's funny. Look, again, I know what you're thinking. You're like, this is stupid. No, no, it's worth it. Just trust me. Just trust if you've ever trusted me on anything, <laughs> trust me on these. Fight of the Century and Fear the Boom and the Bust. Great things. Um, yeah, so th those are some resources. Christian, do you have any resources that you want to? I mean, the Y minutes. I mean, are yeah, actually yeah. a really good resource. We <laughs> they should be plugging for so, stuff that we actually do here, right? So, so you know, for those of you listening at home or watching, um, we we do more than just this podcast. Yeah. Um, Hamilton produces more than just making the argument. He's yeah. also the producer of the Y minutes, mm -hmm. and all three of us actually play a role in that process. Yeah. And the Y minutes are really short videos. They're usually about three minutes long in length. And they discuss all sorts of, you know, different topics throughout history, economics, philosophy, government, you mm -hmm. know, the sort of stuff that we talk about here, but in a, in a little bit, you know, less complex, more visually pleasing. Yeah. Um, lots of graphics. Yeah. We, lots we just of had graphics. A, a great episode on Singapore yeah, and it, well. it, that's a great example actually, of how a free market economy can, mm -hmm. you know, raise a nation out of poverty and help us succeed. A, a better one that I think is worth um, watching, if you've just finished this episode, if you've gotten this far into this podcast and you're still <laughs> interested in us, yeah. um, I highly recommend that you watch our video about the Japanese price asset bubble yeah. in the 1980s. What's the title of that video? Um, it's called Why Japan Never Became a Superpower. So yeah. um, if you're older than us, if you're older than Hamilton and I, if you're like in your 30s or 40s, you probably remember as a kid, everybody was talking about how Japan was like the emerging yeah. world power and yeah. they never quite made it. They never became the economic superpower that everybody thought they were in the eighties. And the reason why is because Japan now it's different than what we have here. There's, there's definitely some differences. Japan's uh, demographics were way different, but there were a lot of similarities between the implosion of the Japanese price asset bubble and what is currently going on here in the United States. I don't think it's it's an exact one for one, but there is a lot of eerie similarities between gonna, the two. I'm going to give you one spoiler on this too, just to encourage you to go and see it. If you want an idea of how bad the real estate bubble in Tokyo got, like you, we talk about real estate bubbles in the United States. You want to talk about how bad it got in Tokyo? There this was, is in the 80s. There right? was, this is in the 80s. There was a palace complex, right? The old palace complex in Tokyo. And that palace complex, that one area of Tokyo, was estimated to be worth an entire American state. And I'm not going to tell you which one, but it was the equivalent of all of the real estate in an entire American state. And the one it was will shock you. Because right now you're thinking Wyoming. It wasn't. 
Oh, I'm no. telling you, I am telling you right now. Go watch that video. It's it's why Japan ever became a uh, superpower. It's on the Y minutes. We'll link it. Yeah, I'll I'll yeah. one up them just to hype this episode even more. There was one ward in downtown Tokyo. So you know, a few square blocks, yeah. right? There was one ward in downtown Tokyo that was worth more than all of the real estate in one entire country yeah. Yeah. in the world. Um, that and right we, now you're thinking Haiti, and it's not. And it's not <laughs> Haiti. I'll give, I'll give you a hint. They're, they're, they're considered something of an economic... I, I, if you walk away from this episode, though, because you know yeah. we're kind of in the speakeasy section. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, we're, we're wrapping this up. But like, if you walk away from this episode and you, you walk away with anything... I think Nick hit the, the 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 nail on the head in his making the argument segment about how, at the end of the day, the reason that we're in the everything bubble when it comes to the markets, which are starting to unravel, yeah. real estate, which is not yet unraveled, student loans, which is through the roof, the reason that that we are at this point is because, as usual, the political class are acting like arsonists who are now pretending to be the fire brigade. Yeah. They are coming out there. And they're telling the general public, we've got the solutions. We need to tax the evil, you know, greedy rich people. We need to take more money from them. We need to increase taxes. We need to increase regulations. We need to forgive all the debt. When they are the ones who are responsible for the bubble in the first place, either directly or indirectly through their actions, either through through direct government spending or through indirectly allowing the Federal Reserve to get away with what they've been doing for so long. And I think that that is the heart of why we are in this economic crisis. That's why inflation is through the roof. That's why you can't afford a home if you're under the age of 30. It's why student loan debt is becoming one of the largest forms of debt in the entire country. It's because government policies have made it so. And the same people that are responsible for that are the same people that are now offering themselves as the solution to a problem that they created. Uh, it's a uh, great summarization. That was beautiful. <laughs> that was beautiful. And, and and if anybody thinks that we're just you know, we're we're oversimplifying this on our side and say oh it's all it's all government again I, w- I want to emphasize something we're not sitting here just blaming Democrats I, I'll be happy to point the finger at Republicans too because they also bear um, some of the responsibility what what I what we want people to understand at the end of the day is that this is about good sound economic policy fiscal policy investment policy mm-hmm. spending policy monetary policy and I, I don't care what party you belong to. If, if you're violating certain rules of reality, you're going to get bad results. And if you're operating within certain rules of reality, you're going to get positive results. And it doesn't mean that people are always going to make wise decisions with respect to their own investments or what business they decide to start. But the, the, the vast difference between the experiment within the United States and the rest of the world is that you have the power over making these economic decisions for yourself and improving your, your station. And making your own life better through through risk and reward and, and work-life balance. Like you you have freedom and ability to do that. And all of the people right now telling you that they're gonna save you are offering to save you at the expense of the freedom that is absolutely necessary to be able to make those decisions. And so I think some people act like, well, maybe I'm giving up a little bit of freedom, but it, it's gonna take away some of this anxiety. Oh my God, please look at history on this. It doesn't. I, I know they're promising you this. It doesn't produce it. You, you end up with, yeah, you end up with less anxiety because you know you're never going to be able to go anywhere in this life when they're the ones controlling it for you. I don't think that's the sort of environment any of us want to and live in. And I would argue that long-term, you actually have more anxiety because systems don't work. I was, being, I was being flippant on the, yeah. you know, yeah, you get more anxiety because then it's no longer a question of, will I ever get that house I wanted? It's a question of, am I going to be taken away and put in a mine or somewhere? Where am I going to get my food next? Yeah, I, I, there was a funny... Uh, <laughs> 
there's a funny meme I saw where it was, hey, comrade, I'm, I'm supposed to be doing the poetry for the revolution. It's like, oh, yes, you can think of poetry while digging for raw earth materials with uh, <laughs> rare earth materials with there no was safety a meme, equipment. We need to tweet this meme at some point. There was this meme that said the uh, differences between capitalism and communism, and it was like the, the difficulty of capitalism was like you get a little um, plastic duck. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'll show <laughs> I you saw this. It, yeah. I saw it, and then yeah. the other one was like the body count. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's, it, it's fun stuff. Well, look, I appreciate everyone hanging out. I know this was... I know we kind of went through a lot of things on this episode, but the reason why we did is because, again, we are trying to prepare you to be able to defend against some of the most common arguments that are made out now. And the reason why this is so important is because, like I already said, the car crash is going to happen. Right, but the same people that are crashing the car are gonna are right now preparing the work within your kids' schools, within the universities, within the news, within popular culture. They are prepping the objective so that when it crashes, you are blaming everybody except the people that actually made it happen. And we want you to know the truth so that you can fight against it. Uh, one of these episodes too, I think we'll go into a little bit more on what you can actually what what you can do on a personal level. Because yeah. a lot of people are like, okay, great, Nick, what you're telling me is vote better, but doomed. What, what do I do right now when I, I can't afford a house or something else? Actually, there, there are some answers to that as well that, that we can talk about. We don't give financial advice. We don't give investing advice. I want to make that very clear. But, um, you know, again, interesting opportunities are going to be created as a result of this to where I think more and more people are going to take power where the government might come in and say, well, you can't do that. You can't do that. And I think people are going to be like, mm, all right, we'll see. <laughs> so anyways, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Making the Argument. Uh, next episode, we've got an interesting, we've got our first guest coming on we where we're going to analyze political speech. And um, I'm not just talking about Reagan and Thatcher. We're gonna have some. We're gonna have some people that are gonna be analyzed by the expert that we're bringing on, that you are not gonna want to miss. Maybe we'll have. Maybe you should analyze one of my speeches. That, that could. That would be. That, that could be, be dangerous. Be, let's we, not. Let's we not shouldn't tell him. We shouldn't tell him. No. Be like, hey, we've got one more speech. We want you to analyze. And I'd be like, this guy's a moron. That, that episode <laughs> comes out this Thursday. This Thursday. All right. So once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next episode.